one of the things the positive psychology movement, like if you were to kind of distill it down to a couple of key messages, I think this is something that Chris Peterson used to say is that other people matter. There's just like so many studies, you know, trying to pick out like who are the various happy people and what do they all have in common? They have strong social relationships. And it's not to say like you can have strong social relationships and things still go wrong in your life, but that seems to be like necessary. It seems to be essential to our best lives. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, where we're on a mission to help us uncover our own unique money stories and help guide ourselves towards a healthy and happy relationship with money so that we can all live a deeply rich and meaningful life. Thank you to our returning listeners and thanks for all the new listeners. I hope you enjoy today's show. If you have been enjoying the show, if you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that'd be greatly appreciated. Today, we have a special guest, Professor John Zielinski from Carleton University. John is a researcher and the director of the Carleton University Happy Laboratory. Yes, the Happy Laboratory, where he studies individual differences in happiness and how personality manifests itself in the moment as emotional and cognitive processes. In a world where we obsess over finding happiness, you don't have to look very far to see the latest, greatest tips and tricks on how to find happiness. John argues that one of the most accessible and impactful ways or areas of life that can bring us great levels of happiness is often overlooked, and that's nature. During this episode, John shares with us his research on the well-being benefits of interacting with nature in meaningful ways. Much of the reasons why we work is to bring happiness or enjoyment to our lives. We spend lots of money, lots of time trying to find the things that make us happy. I thought it would be very interesting and insightful to bring John on the show to show us how at times we might be overlooking areas that bring us a lot of fulfillment, enjoyment and happiness such as nature. John explains how developing a connection with nature has been scientifically proven to increase our well-being and how going outside and being in nature is one of the most accessible and affordable ways to add elements of well-being in our lives. John's research also explores the fascinating topic of self-concept. While many of us think that money is the best way to boost our self-concept by acquiring material possession, status, and security, these attempts are often limited. John's research has shown the psychological benefits that build our self-concept from having this deep connection or relationship with nature. It was really interesting to hear the research that John talks about on the show. As I know for myself, I often overlook the benefits that we can get from just going out for a walk and being in nature. Well, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. John Zielinski. Change making money. Change making money. 
John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we were just chatting for a few minutes before we started recording, and your work is around well-being, happiness, and many other assets, our areas. And I just felt good talking to you, by the way. So I just thought I'd let you know that it's your work is coming through the Zoom room as well. Oh, thank you so much. That's a, that's a nice compliment. I've enjoyed our first few minutes together as well. Many areas we can start, but let's start with this question. Imagine you wake up to a new day, you have a small little breakfast, and you open your web browser to see the headline, government begins adjusting tax policies to maximize happiness. How would you react? And you may recognize this question, by the way. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So how I would react is this is like fantastic news. I think this I'm all in. I'm all for it. It comes from <laughs> I love that you found this. The the first line of a textbook about positive psychology I've written. And it's meant to really kind of capture this notion that, you know, along with other elements of the positive psychology movement, one of the pushes and one that I think has a lot of potential is this notion of using research and explicitly research on happiness to help guide, you know, policies in every way, but tax policy in particular. Well, we can hope that this headline comes soon and perhaps you can be a, a good guide on how we can answer that. <laughs> Before we were talking, I let you know how this podcast really aspires to help us reveal our relationships with money. So we really know how to use money in our lives beyond the necessities of how can we facilitate living a good life? What is a good life? What does happiness mean? What is well-being? While these are questions that seem intuitive on the surface, I think for many, we can wrestle to find a true authentic answer at times. So you've written a book on positive psychology, perhaps just for people who might not be familiar. familiar we've had several people with, within the positive psychology realm, but touch on what positive psychology seeks to discover or explain or reveal? And what does happiness or well-being mean to you personally? For me, one of the best things about positive psychology or why I valued it, and I will say it's a little bit of um, a slow or long journey for me. I was really fortunate at the very beginning of positive psychology to be a student at the University of Michigan, where some, I think, the important founders like Chris Peterson, who studied optimism, was there. Barb Fredrickson, who came up with this broaden and build theory of positive emotions, I TA'd for her. I was taking seminars on emotion from her. And so it's like the, the door was like wide open to positive psychology right from the beginning. And then I guess additionally, I got involved with kind of the first big study as a graduate student where we tracked people's emotions in day-to-day -day life. And what just like flew out of the data is if you just look at how much do people report various pleasant emotional states and unpleasant emotional states, the pleasant ones like by far dominate. It's not even close. Most of the time, people are in good moods. And if that sounds like off or doesn't make sense, oftentimes the negative ones stick out in our memory or respond vigorously, probably because they're less frequently. But we tend, we lean towards these positive things. So there was all of this, you know, kind of influence to, to get into or to see the value of positive psychology, but it was a little bit skeptical because there are ways that it doesn't seem very scientific either in that, well, we're just going to presume things are positive or let's study this. It will be good, which kind of puts the conclusion potentially before the findings or, you know, we will assume that human nature is good. I was a little uncomfortable with this. But kind of the way the way I got into it, and now I, I do identify as a positive psychologist, even if a, a cantankerous one at times, 
I think the the biggest thing it did is provide that balance. Like the key observation that the founders were correct about is that psychology had really veered off to the side and only looking at disorders and errors. And we studied emotions. It was like all these unpleasant ones. And, and Barb Fredrickson was asking the questions, well, what, why do we have the good ones? What are those good for? And it's almost as if people had not thought to, or at least not paid much time and attention to answering questions like that. So for me, positive psychology as a psychological scientist is a really useful movement because it just got us paying attention to to our states, our experiences, our personality characteristics that are so common and were kind of being ignored. You also asked me kind of what, how do I think of well-being and happiness? I mean, there, there's a lot of answers to that. And I think it's interesting. I love teaching positive psychology to kind of go through. Some people think it's this, other people think it's that. And you asked me the hard question of what I think it is. Um, and it's maybe hard to pick just one. But I, I will say when I hear the word happiness, it does kind of connote to me. I think pleasure is, is an important part of it. I'm very much on board with the idea that a good life includes other things like a sense of authenticity and purpose and, and meaning. And so if we talk about a happy life, to me, it's it seems a little bit more euphemistic, like happiness kind of means like I have a sense of contentment and, and pleasure. And I guess this this kind of tripartite or these three parts of subjective well-being that academics sometimes talk about the positive emotions, the life satisfaction, the fewer negative emotions. That's my first intuition. But I have lots of time and energy for people who say we need to look broader than that too. That That's also an important part of a good life. So what would that look like if we got to look broader to that, broader than oh, those? Yeah. So other things like people talk about flourishing or eudaimonia. I think having some sense of purpose or meaning, feeling uh, autonomous that you get to do the things that are interesting and important to you rather than feeling overly controlled, feeling authentic in that similar way. And I think you can kind of just keep expanding the circle out. So, you know, like uh, maybe positive relationships with other people. And for me, it starts to become a question of which of these are happiness per se, and which are these are the things that predict happiness. But they're all good to have. Thank you. You know, as you were talking, it made me think of, um, I can't recall which book, but Rick Hansen, he talks about how negative emotions are like Velcro. They stick where positive emotions are like Teflon and they slip off or they go quicker. When you were talking about how you open up, saying how we have many of these positive emotions that we feel, but maybe when we reflect back, we might be feeling the negative ones more and more. And, and you talked about the broad and build theory. And I, I really find that an interesting and valuable theory of the more we can experience these positive emotions, the more we start to just see more. It builds our, our capacity to see these and experience positive emotions. And it gets me thinking about our relationships with the money, where at times we can recognize that Money can constrict this. We're very focused on the pursuit of money. We know money's important to to have shelter and make life easier. But I really like how positive psychology has come in and said, hey, this is what well-being from a research perspective looks like. My last question in around this opening part is, you mentioned authenticity twice. And mm -hmm. I felt a different inflection when you said it the second time. I'm just curious, was that intentional, unconscious, or can you just share what you've seen in your research on how authenticity can help create this good life? And my last thing is because I feel like at times this social constructed view of the pursuit of money at mm. times can silence our authenticity. Yeah, it was probably unconscious, but I think maybe the way I got there is I think there are some different views or perspectives on authenticity out there. 
and I maybe kind of had competing ones in mind each of those times, if I'm, if I'm thinking back on it correctly. So one thing that I think authenticity is, is kind of that not uh, being overly controlled, like doing the things that you feel you want to do. That's very close to this notion of autonomy, though. Other ways uh, to think about authenticity are, you know, behaving in accordance, like in the moment, I'm doing something that is consistent with my true self. And this has been something I'm interested in. And then trying to get at kind of what elements of our our self-concepts or our personality are most important there. I'm not sure how far down this road do you want to go, but there are some, to me, really fascinating findings to just to throw one out there. You know, people who are dispositionally introverted often report feeling very authentic when they're behaving in extroverted ways. And you think like, what? How can this be? Like they're behaving unlike themselves, unlike their typical disposition, uh, but they're they're feeling authenticity. I think we have an answer in many of these cases, or at least some strong suggestions that, yes, but sometimes these behaviors help us accomplish other meaningful goals. So right now I'm trying to be uh, interesting. I'm trying to explain some things. If I was like my most introverted self and I, I lean in that direction, you know, day to day, I don't think I'd do as good of a job if I wasn't, you know, trying to liven things up a little, maybe act a little bit more extroverted than is typical for me. And so that feels authentic. Interesting. So what you're saying is with your research, you found that people, if their natural personality state is introvert, if they act in a way extrovert, they can feel more authentic? Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, across a few studies we've done, it seems that our moment to moment feelings of authenticity track a lot stronger with our values, the things that we think are like morally correct and important than kind of our basic big five personality traits like introversion, extroversion, or conscientiousness. Another little mind twist in this is that values, at least from the the perspective of psychological science, values are things that pretty much all people agree are good. And so we have individual differences in whether, you know, I might value power more strongly than benevolence and, and vice versa. So you do see individual differences and cultural differences, but pretty much everyone agrees it's good to be benevolent. It's good to be kind and nice and helpful, supportive to the, the people we care about. And so doing that makes me feel authentic rather than doing the reverse. On the other hand, when we look at these traits, it's, it's easy to behave like we have a, an average, a disposition, but it's easy to behave in ways that kind of contradict or counteract that just in day to day life. I guess the point is people do that all the time. And we do it for a good reason. We do it to accomplish goals. We do it to get the things that we value. And, you know, I, I, when I was reading your research on how extroverts tend to have more positive emotions at times, I, I haven't done a test for a while, but I self-identify as maybe an introvert or an extrovert who was shy his whole life that he thought he was introvert. I don't really know. But at first I was like, no, it can't only be extroverts. And then, uh, you know, that was an emotional reaction that maybe I could sit with and examine later. But um, can it be like, say this introvert who's acting into the extrovert? I hear that because when I was quiet and wanted to use my voice, I was, you know, scared. But I, when I did and even doing this, it feels good and it's stepping into those values. But can it also be on the other side where it's exhausting for that introvert? Or does that go to maybe if you're not being authentic and you're trying to act and be something you are not? Yeah, I have two answers to that question. There's my personal experience where I'm like, of course, it's totally exhausting. And then that, though, it completely contradicts 
what I've been able to find in the research that I've done, which is, and, and there are some caveats to this. So I, I can like hold both of these ideas in my mind. But when we do, for example, a lab study, we bring people in, we ask them to act extroverted for 15 minutes. Then we try to give them some tasks of fatigue or cognitive tasks. We don't find any of these dispositional differences. So it's already to be like, yes, yes, it makes you happy. But look, you'll perform, you know, poorly on a cognitive task afterwards. We just don't find evidence for that. And it's possible that we just haven't pushed people far enough. Or uh, I can think another idea is unless you're like the most extreme extrovert, you know, you might enjoy this more. It might be more typical, but maybe it's also a little bit fatiguing. Like I know a couple people who like kind of relax and restore by being more social, but I know a lot more people, even some who are pretty extroverted that still need their downtime. So I, yeah, it's kind of one of these things that more research needed. The intuition is strong, but it's been hard to see in the research. You know, I didn't plan on going this way, but my curiosity <laughs> is just tweaked now. We talked to a lot of psychologists who would maybe not be on the positive side as well. When I say positive, they look at more of the disease mentality of unpacking our past so we can make sense. And at times we've heard, especially around our money stories, say we use money to buy big fancy things that are flashy. Maybe the way we handle money is extrovert, is loud, we're, we're, we're getting attention. And it has been seen at times that this is linked to, you know, I want to go to the basic psychological needs. I want to be seen, safe, valued. At times, our large expenses, our flashy expenses could be linked to this need of just being seen, valued, and heard. I'm wondering, this is probably not in the research. I'm just curious right now. Your research showed that extroverts report, I think, being happier. Could any of that be linked to the extrovert just being this individual who wants to talk and be the center of the stage, who wants to be seen, who just maybe doesn't sit and do some, I felt, I sound so judgmental right now, but some reflective practice, some stillness mm -hmm. to really understand what's going on below the waterline, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're saying that they're just kind of like on all the time and on uh, all the time. And they're actually yeah. distracted, living an unexamined, <laughs> unexamined story. <laughs> and that sounds really yeah. bad, but I, no, I, I don't want to label that to everybody, but yeah. Yeah, no, I hear, I hear what you're saying. One of the answers here is, I think, and this has been done a whole lot in the popular media, but the way personality psychologists carve up personality with something like the five-factor model, some of the things that you're talking about now seem more associated with that trait of openness to experience, people who like to think. Um, people who like, you know, new and, and different sensations. And, and what's interesting is, is openness. There's kind of like an extroverted flavor to it of this like adventurousness and seeking new experiences. But then there's like kind of this rich mental life, which mm. seems like maybe we, we try to associate more with introversion. And so I, I would say that statistically, it looks like we kind of get people of both kinds where some elements of this openness kind of lean towards an extroverted direction, some towards an introverted direction. Another thing that comes to mind is that what we tend to not appreciate or think of enough is just how variable people are moment to moment. So we kind of start to imagine the prototypical extrovert who's like always on the go. But if you actually track them moment to moment, use like an experience sampling method where I ask you, how are you behaving right now at this moment? And you ask people many times over the course of a couple of weeks. We find that extroverts kind of do have those quiet moments too. So everybody is doing kind of the full range of behaviors. But it is still also clear that our dispositional averages are, are dramatically different. So I'm not arguing against personality here. I'm kind of arguing against the idea that, oh, this kind of person just doesn't have a concept of what these other kinds of people are like. I think we all kind of, 
you know, are, are behaving in ways that fit the full spectrum, at least some of the time. Your answer makes me realize why I appreciate the work that you do and other academic researchers is that my question probably was largely based on my own personal experience with individuals, maybe that I'm thinking in my head. And I think it's always, <laughs> yeah, worthwhile to see what the rigorous work you guys are doing to, to come up with ideas yeah. or concepts that we can elaborate on. Well, let, let me validate your intuition though, too, is what psychological science, or at least the methods that we most commonly use is good at is talking about overall general averages and like, you know, across thousands of people, I can talk about this trait of openness to experience, but you may well have in mind this particular individual who is always on go and is not reflective and really captures that. And so when you talk about these broad averages and differences across people, it doesn't necessarily do a fantastic job of explaining individuals as well as we might like or individuals who we know well and we do have an idea of. I mean, I can talk about the statistics and that way of knowing, but I don't want to dismiss the notion that there are people just like you described. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for that. So what I thought, and I appreciate that conversation, but where I thought we would really dive into is that if our time on this world, our time in our bodies is, is I think, to enjoy, to make contribution, to make the world a better place, to live a good life, to increase our well-being, you've been doing some really interesting research in how we interact with nature and our connection with nature and how it impacts our well-being. I know through conversations that I have with people, I'm a financial planner, is sometimes we wait. It seems like the dialogues are we're waiting to experience life, to increase our well-being on that vacation. That vacation we spend quite a bit of money on, we save up for it. And yes, of course, those are good, good for us to take a downtime, to experience the world, to learn from the world. But I do see often that we're waiting to feel good on those in those moments. And there's something to be said for delayed gratification. But my question is, what is your research suggesting on how we can maybe feel more of those positive emotions, increasing our well-being, just where our two feet are right now in the nature that we exist or we coexist with today? Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're right. I'm hearing that, you know, yes, it's good to, to have these, these big pleasurable events. But the best case scenario is like we come away from it with a good memory or it only lasts a week and, and then it's done. And, and so I'm very much on board with this idea of creating, you know, day-to-day -day rituals or experiences or trying to live our life moment to moment in a way that is also pleasant and, and meaningful. And this is the kind of thing we find with nature. And so nature and people who feel connected to nature tend to be happier. Just the contact, you know, living next to a park or living on a street that has more trees on it is associated with better health and happiness. But looking, I really like that you asked these moment to moment things too, and, and kind of the intentionality of it. And so in addition to just kind of being there in nature, kind of how you're thinking about it seems to be important too. So, you know, if you are mindful in a natural context or you have this sense of personal connection, like it can be like a, just a, a feeling, I feel close to it, but then maybe also some kind of understanding of, you know, either through evolution or the connections of an ecosystem. Like I really am a part of nature and connected to nature. You know, some, sometimes that's unpleasant and, you know, we see a, a dead squirrel on the side of the road and that maybe that, that brings up unpleasant thoughts. But oftentimes it's like amazing. You know, nature is one of these prototypical contexts that promotes awe 
and you know it could be a sunset and you've seen you know thousands of sunsets but there's something about it on that day that just you know there's something amazing and and even transcendent about it so nature and even nearby nature you know be it a, a bird you know on the sidewalk a, a tree a plant kind of a, taking the time to notice it and and to the extent that people feel a part of it these seem to be pretty accessible boosts to our our happiness and here happiness that can both just be like this is a pleasant emotion it's beautiful or perhaps even more kind of transcendent and meaningful you used the word awe which i thought was a, a really applicable word when i envision myself seeing a sunset I, I feel like awe is the feeling that i get what is it about nature that we can feel this sense of awe on one hand we can really be like you you use the word part of it but the other hand, we could be so busy, we just don't notice it. I, I believe you did a paper on mindfulness and the connection with um, nature. What was it that differentiated the people who maybe fail to notice it or the people who really feel part of it to experience that sense of awe? There is this individual difference that we've studied. We created a questionnaire measure of, we call it nature relatedness. And there are similar measures called connection to nature. It's pretty much just what it sounds like. Do you have a, a sense of self where you feel and think of yourself as part of nature and close to nature? And there are items on that questionnaire that are like, you know, I, I notice nature wherever I go, or, you know, even in the middle of the city, you know, I notice little bits and pieces of wildlife. And so that, that does seem to be an, an individual difference where some people are just more oriented towards it and experience it. But it's also the case in some of the studies we do, you know, we will do an experiment where we randomly assign people to, to have different experiences on the, the campus at Carleton. We can take people on like a 15 or 20 minute walk and never go outside because all the buildings are connected by tunnels, which is great in January when it's super cold, but it's pretty dreary and, and not seen outside can be a downer. That's certainly what we find. And then we also, um, you know, we're kind of nestled between a river and a canal so we can give people a nice nature walk. And we find that they are happier and they feel more connected to nature when they're outside in it rather than in the tunnels. But if we give them a little instruction to, you know, pay attention, you know, notice how the wind feels on your face, uh, you know, hear, hear the sound, see the sights, like a little mindfulness induction that seems to boost that sense of connection even more. So even people who are not dispositionally prone to it with a, a little instruction or a little prompt can seem to get into it in a way that they, they wouldn't otherwise. Ah, neat. So, so these individuals who aren't dispositionally prone to it in that experiment, they, I'm hearing you. They report a better connection. Can that last? Like, if I'm not intuitively always being present or noticing things in nature, in this experiment, it works. But do you see that? I guess is I don't know that that's a personality or that's a view perspective. Can that last in a meaningful change? In this particular kind of study, I, I don't expect it does. We, we've never, you know, followed people up even an hour later to ask them. But my guess is that it's there for a few minutes and then it's gone. There are some intervention studies or some attempts to give people this more of it over a longer period of time. Out in Alberta, Ahali Ann Passmore, another Canadian psychologist, has people somehow like notice or savor the nature over a course of two weeks. So she might people have people, you know, take a photo of something that like is emotionally evocative to them, either in nature or a built environment, or um, to write about it. And after doing this for two weeks, it does seem like a bit more of a lasting connection. Or uh, there's the Suzuki Foundation 30 by 30 challenge. So the people who go there are already kind of into nature. It's not a, a true experiment. 
and it's not everybody in the world doing it. But people who kind of commit to spending 30 minutes a day for 30 days in nature seem to boost their their well-being, their connection to nature, and also kind of their intentions to do good sustainable behaviors after that month of kind of making it a practice. I feel like uh, there's probably many different influences to what I'm going to say here, but I feel like maybe there's a sample size you guys can study is that I'm a runner and a cyclist, and I recently just went to Mexico with my family. And there was a part of me that felt, oh, not right now, because I've been doing a lot of mountain biking out in the cold here in Edmonton. Our river valley is gorgeous. And it was like the peak mountain bike, winter mountain biking season here. And I was like, oh, I'm going to miss some of that. And I know my relationship with nature. I was never really someone who just sat and noticed things in nature. But when you're running every morning before your kids get up, you get to see sunrises, you get to notice the river valley that I lived in. I lived in the river valley for 10 years before I really loved it. So I do think this exposure, and I feel like cyclists and runners, since we're in it so much, I know my relationship with nature has dramatically changed just because uh, I'm out there so much. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there are some people, I I don't have the most up-to-date you know review of the research, but there are people looking at if you exercise in nature, are you going to get more out of it than if you do it you know, on a treadmill in the basement? And from what I've seen, it kind of leans towards, you know, it might Im- improve motivation. There might be something to that, but not not really my expertise. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, though. So part of your research also is, like, say it makes us feel good, which we're, we're saying that it can help increase our well-being. But the benefits don't stop there. When you start to look at pro-social benefits of connection with nature, you look at sustainable benefits. Can you touch on, again, just the such positive impacts that you're seeing from a pro-social and a sustainable perspective. Yeah, I don't want to say that like nature is a complete panacea for everything. So we've occasionally done some studies where we kind of don't don't find the results we're hoping for. But with that said, there are both, you know, some bigger theories and some empirical findings that suggest that the benefits of nature and nature exposure are pretty broad. So we've done some studies where we've even just showing people nature videos compared to you know videos of, of urban scenes or, or other control conditions. People behave more cooperatively. Again, I don't think these effects will last forever, but it kind of suggests there might be this link of when you expose people to nature, they might behave in more pro-social ways. Or this, there's this uh, reasonable person model, um, which suggests that in environments that are kind of calming, that have the right amount of information flow. So we're not bored, but we're not completely overwhelmed, like maybe we're walking down a busy downtown street would be that that has us in a frame of mind where we can think clearly, where we can exert self-control and kind of behave the ways we would prefer to behave rather than flying off the handle. And it's not that you couldn't design a built space that was also conducive to this, but it's that probably because we evolved in natural environments, like that's kind of what our minds are tuned to. And so like we behave and we feel good in them. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because your background too that I felt that at the start of this <laughs> podcast. John's got a beautiful Ontario, I was gonna say prairie, but feel, it, it looks them the like prairies. a prairie. Okay, we yeah. do have hills here, but you okay. can't tell from this photo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a snowy owl on top of the silo. Part of this exploration here on my podcast, especially in this conversation, is to help answer this. How do we build, how do we create or uncover a richer life and I don't ever want to dismiss the ease that money can create, but saving up a, you know, a lot of money takes time. It takes years. 
or this idea is how can we create a richer life? I'm really hearing this connection with nature is going to help us from an individual well-being perspective. It helps us from a pro-social. But I've also heard you talk about how a connection with nature can increase our self-concept. I, I was listening to an episode where you were talking a little bit about this idea of self-concept and how nature, our connection with nature can help increase our self-concept. Do you mind elaborating on, for those who need a refresher on what is a self-concept and how does nature play at increasing our self-concept? I think this kind of uh, takes us back to the notion of nature-relatedness. So when we spend time in nature or people who tend to spend a lot of time in nature, I mean, an analogy here is almost like a, a social relationship. So to take a step back, I'm thinking of self-concept as like, how do I see myself? Who am I? What's important to me? What are all the parts? And for these nature-related people, nature is an important part. It feels like a connection or relationship. So when I say, you know, who am I? I might also say, like, I'm a brother. I'm a partner. I have these social relationships and I care about these people and I feel close to them. And just like when we care about and we feel close to to other people, you know, we want to take care of them and treat them well. When we feel close to nature, we also want to take care of it and treat it well. And, and I think that's how we understand there's a really strong connection, you know, even stronger than the link between nature connection and happiness is this relationship between or this statistical association between nature relatedness and doing nice things for the environment. The big idea here is that, you know, this can be a win-win. So if people connected with nature more, they get their individual happiness and well-being benefits. And then maybe we've snuck through the back door. They're also treating the environment better and, and preserving the environment. So we all get to, you know, continue to have those benefits into the future. And, you know, it's all right there outside of our door. What you're talking That's about. Right. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And and even for people who live in the middle of the city, you know, there, there's something like wonderful about being far away from it and, you know, kind of the great expanse of nature. But you can you can find, you know, bits and pieces of it and kind of the wonder of it, like almost anywhere, even, even inside, you know, if you have uh, the right house plants or non-human animal companions. Those listening who might be right in the middle of the city, you just mentioned houseplants. What, what are other ways that you've seen or you have observed others who are bringing this connection with nature inside this dense urban living? Yeah, so I live in downtown Ottawa. You know, I can, I can walk to Parliament Hill in 10 minutes and, and this is what I'm doing. So I've been doing some urban gardening that was spurred by the pandemic and, and even indoors. I have a bird feeder. I just saw like Circle of Life yesterday where this hawk was just tearing up a little bird in my backyard. So maybe should time to rethink the bird feeder. I mean, Ottawa is, is perhaps, you know, it's, it's not the most dense urban environment. We still have rivers, we still have trees, but I'm trying to imagine places I've been where you can't find like those little restorative niches, those plants, those flowers, you know, parks are maybe sometimes they're manicured and maybe overly designed, but they're usually designed to express kind of the pleasant elements of nature. And I think that is good for the well-being, even if sometimes they aren't necessarily the best for the actual nature, still good for the human happiness. Your your example of the birds is, that's part of, you know, the circle of life, I guess. Um, yes, yes. But you, you did a study with birds, did you not? Oh, yes. Can you just explain where the curiosity of John was going to to actually participate in this study because when I when I, I reviewed it quite quickly, but I thought it was a super unique study. I mean, this is one where I was just kind of happy to be invited to the party. It was some biologists at Carleton who knew I was studying nature and nature connection. 
And they have this amazing data about, you know, put into geography quite nicely. So they have these maps and they link that up with, for example, the, the bird count where they know what regions of the city have, you know, more birds and more variety of birds and such. And then this graduate student went around asking people how satisfied they were with their neighborhood and how happy they were and if they felt connected to nature. Of all the things that, that were looked at in this study, and this was all around uh, Ottawa, and we found that essentially the areas that had more diversity in birds were associated with uh, people were happy, happier with those parts of the city. So it kind of suggests on this you know, bigger geographical scale that, that you know, having a lot of nice birds around seems to be good for the happiness. You know, this morning when we were walking my kids to school, it was like only minus five today and a bird started chirping. And my son's like, hey, the birds are back. And I, re I remember actually feeling them like, hey, that felt good. Is, is this spring? Like immediately I'm like, it's spring. And so very interesting. I've never really noticed. Yeah, birds, it just, I guess it for me, uh, for sure, feels like nature. It feels like the vastness of the outdoors. Yeah, it's something that, I mean, based on my personal experience, it's something that really grows too. So not all that long ago, I would look at, you know, three birds. I would have a hard time like naming the common birds around Ottawa. I'm not, I'm not proud of that. But I kind of took it like as baby steps to like learn, okay, this bird is that, it's different from this other one. And, um, you know, I, I guess may, maybe this is particular to me that I was dispositionally prone to get into birds. It seemed like a, like a good thing as an aging guy, like being a good old man hobby to be a birder. <laughs> I don't know, but it just feeds forward. Like you like learn a couple birds and then you want to learn more and you notice things that you otherwise didn't. And I think kind of like anything that can spark that curiosity or interest, but nature is pretty good at it. Yeah, I'm really hearing that nature helps us pay attention. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to pay attention as we progress through this journey of life. So again, if they, the goal here is to help cultivate this rich life, you're really providing us with some good research on this connection with nature, how it can really increase our well-being and society's well-being. Another part I, I would like to ask you about is because another area that I, when I reflect personally, I know that my family is important to me, my greater family, my extended family, my friends. You did a research, I believe the, the title was about putting we into well-being, where you mm -hmm. explored the idea of different cultures and how they pursue types of well-being, including collectivism themes from that I believe it was stemmed from the Confucian tradition, traditions, your paper. Can you share with us your insights that you gained from the study on the relationship between collectivism and individualism in terms of well-being? So this is part of a, a big international group of collaborators. So again, one that I'm kind of happy to be along for the party. There's this guy in Poland that organizes us all. I think they're calling for a reason, though. Inviting you for a reason. Oh, well, I, yeah. So, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't mean to be too, too self-effacing, yeah. but I, I, I guess I want to like acknowledge and, yeah. and value the collaborators when they, they, they add so much to the work. It's like, I don't get all the credit, certainly. <laughs> but, but in this particular one, yeah, it was a chance to look at data across different countries and different nations. And one of the great things about these collaborations too is like working with others brings brings these new ideas that I hadn't considered to mind. And as we started looking into it more, at first surveys others had done, and then we certainly found this in our data too, is if you, um, for example, ask people, you know, what is the value? What's an ideal life? And you can ask them to rate some items about personal life satisfaction. 
But you could also ask those similar kinds of items, but about, you know, the, the good life, the satisfaction of your family members. And we think of life satisfaction, that's probably a Western concept. It's about an individual life. There are also these concepts of more interdependent happiness about, you know, not necessarily sticking out yourself, but about having a harmonious and kind of calm and agreeable life, you know, getting along well with others. What we found was that regardless of how you ask the questions, kind of more in this frame of personal individual satisfaction or harmonious, you know, getting along with others across nations that were both kind of Western and individualistic or, you know, more Eastern, more collectivist, we found that people really value good lives for their families and in, in both of these ways. And this is very consistent with other data too. Like you see, you know, what do people value? What's important to them? And different nations disagree about, about various things, including money. How important is money? But virtually everybody agrees that family is like top of the list. I was blown away by the strength of, of how much people rank their family at the top. But then we buy big houses. Our families go into different houses far away. I just really enjoy that answer because it helps us realize that, hey, this again, I'm repeating myself intentionally, this richer life is accessible with beyond the dollars and cents. It's integrating more with our families, our friends. In the paper, they have a wonderful quote that just really spoke to me. It's from a Korean proverb. It says, there is no winter without snow no spring without sunshine and no happiness without companions. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is one of the things, the positive psychology movement, like if you were to kind of distill it down to a couple of key messages, I think this is something that Chris Peterson used to say is that other people matter. There's just like so many studies, you know, trying to, to pick out like who are the various happy people and what do they all have in common? They have strong social relationships. And it's not to say like you can have strong social relationships and things still go wrong in your life, but that seems to be like necessary. It seems to be essential to our best lives. Mm -hmm. Even us introverts can kind of, kind of see that if we need to find our quiet yeah. time too, some of the time. We had Robert Bisnaud Dietner on the podcast and he talked about his research of looking at money and happiness when he went to a number of different cultures and he compared the United States with in Calcutta. And I recall a part when he was talking about how they asked, what did you do yesterday or what felt good about yesterday? Something to that degree. And the, in the individuals in Calcutta talked about being with other people, going to prayer, that connection. He even said one, someone said they went to a movie together, whereas he felt a lot of this individual perspective in the United States. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it's interesting, like what elements of, of culture do that, but it may well be the wealth. And this is an anecdote, but it kind of mirrors things you see in the academic literature. But when I visited Morocco a number of years ago, you know, people would say that as we become wealthier, we move out of the family home and we get our own place. And then we're, we're kind of lonely or there's this whole bowling alone that's maybe dated at this point. This idea that perhaps our wealth and I don't I don't even know if we have a great handle on how the internet and social media does this, you know, either makes us physically with others less or, or feel less connected. It does seem like people feel lonely a surprising amount given the or the potential opportunities to connect. And and what is it about our modern society and and, and maybe wealth and, and and sorry, I've just kind of on and on, but it's an interesting question then, like if we have the resources, if we have the money to do these things, like why do we want them if they ultimately separate us from others and make us unhappy? I, I don't have a great answer to that, but it, it's complicated. 
That is such a good, complicated question. It's hard. hard Why do we make it so complicated? <laughs> yeah. I mean, may, maybe, you know, we, we can think to evolutionary reasons and, and our strivings. And, you know, it wasn't until recently that we had so much affluence to to live in isolation. So there wasn't some kind of chat. But I, I mean, this is wildly speculative. Who, who knows? But we do know and we, we're observing that despite the more access to money, the more affluent we become, our happiness on average, I mean, there's studies and I don't know the validity of them. You would know better than me, but it's not so good in terms of we're not vastly more happy compared to how much wealth we've created. Yeah, I think that's certainly true in, in countries like Canada and the U.S., countries that are already you know, doing a pretty good job of meeting basic needs. In the early days of the positive psychology movement, I would put up this graph that everybody else did saying, look, the money goes up and the happiness stays the same. Mm. There is more recent and global data. So like the Gallup World Poll, who's surveying you know, nations, representative sample of all of planet Earth. And data like that, I think, are finding that, you know, particularly in places that aren't so well off, as uh, income and wealth is generated, it is improving dramatically the quality of people's lives. And, and we're talking about much poorer people. So there is certainly something to be said for economic development. But, you know, in, in some societies, maybe we're to the point where the priority could be placed on other things. I agree with you. And, you know, there's always that the initial research of the $75,000, no link of happiness yeah. after. And, you know, I experience it. All of us know that money makes life dramatically easier. And I know there's the research that if you move from one poor developing nation to another, increase, your that's your biggest boost for happiness. So we know, I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing that as well. I think we tend to go this all or nothing mentality yeah. sometimes. And we forget that what we're talking about right now, there are other ways to really experience life that might be more accessible than we think. As we come to an end, I'm curious, what have you revealed about your own self, your own learnings in around what a rich life or a good life means as you've dove, if you've swam and continue to swim in the research around positive psychology and what it means to have a good life? What is something that you've recently revealed that you find fascinating that you'd like to share with others? Hmm. Well, I mean, my personal journey has tracked my my research a bit. So, you know, as a, a kid, I did a lot of stuff in nature and I did scouting. This was family activities. But then as a, a you know, a young, a young person, I'm like, this is why I live in downtown Ottawa. I'm like, take me to the city. I want to go to music clubs. I, you know, want to learn all this stuff that was not part of my my kind of nature upbringing. And then as I started studying this and seeing the benefits of nature and then just like trying it out and, and maybe also getting older, like maybe your 20s are a time, you know, to, to live in the city and and find a romantic partner. Now, you know, my gardening, my birding, my kayaking, like I'm just getting so much out of the nature. And it really is about kind of cultivating it and and like following the passion. Like for me, that just keeps growing in the way, you know, maybe, you know, listening to to music did in my 20s. So I think for me, nature, and I think that probably applies to more people than think about it already, but also just like following your bliss and, and you know, following up on the curiosity is a, a pretty wise thing to do. I, I hear a lot about this, just being with the moment, being present. And I think you you need to be present to follow up on that curiosity that you just talked talked about. My final question, which which I do ask everybody is, if you were at end of life and you were sitting on a front porch looking at something that brings you complete peace and ease, could be downtown Ottawa, 
could be an ocean, mountain, meadows, it doesn't matter. You're at end of life and you pull out a notebook and you're sitting on this front porch and you decide to write a letter on what you've learned on how to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Let's see. Well, I do think this natural environment is conducive to thinking and reflecting. So that's good. And then, I I mean, I think it would be like, don't worry too much. Like, try to relax about it. But one thing that will help you relax about it is, uh, you know, depending on your circumstances, but if you have that little bit of cushion where like there are all kinds of money decisions and, and everyone doesn't have to be you know, this is make or break because I'm really walking the tightrope and I can't screw anything up. I think this is what, what a lot of people are going, but to have that cushion and then like kind of relax about the other stuff. Like, I think, I think this is a message you have. I, and I would agree that it's not about necessarily profit maximization, but it's about, you know, using money as a way to pursue your, your values. You know, so, sometimes this is getting to be a longer answer, but you know, I was brought up to like be very conscientious and save. And I, I've more had to kind of break out of that mold and be like, sometimes you just got to spend some money because that's going to be fun. And so long as you're not, you know, jeopardizing your future self, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I, I really do. Yeah, I appreciate that one. That question. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective of how we can help create more well-being in our lives and how could we really can develop this relationship with nature. Like I said before, it's just outside of our door. It's waiting yes. for us. John, I know you're a professor. If people are interested in finding more about your work, your your textbook, I did get a copy and I was browsing through and it, it's really, I'm doing a master's in positive psychology, so it's very useful for me. But uh, nice. where can people find you online? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The book as a textbook is prob- probably not for everyone uh, curling up by the fire. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do have a, a, me and my lab have a web page. I'm pretty Googleable, but uh, carlton.ca slash happiness lab. And that will lead you to lots of other stuff. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining us today. It's been a huge pleasure. Thanks for the great conversation. I appreciate it too. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. If you're still listening, I might make an assumption that you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. It'd be greatly appreciated. Until next week, have yourself a wonderful one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life it's just the wind in the sea